Awesome. Are you ready for the word? It's so good to have you with us in church today. Uh, I want to real quick just mention, you know, when Maria was praying a minute ago and then she paused and took time to pray over us again. It's important that we as a church understand that we're not here to get through a program, but we're here to let the Holy Spirit minister to us. And there are times when you walk into a room and the Holy Spirit moves upon the person who's leading that service, and he does this intentionally because at that moment, it's important that we pick up on what the Holy Spirit's working on and we let him pray over us. We let him speak over us because prayer is not a ceremony or a tradition. Prayer moves mountains. Prayer changes circumstances. And so when we pause, and I want to say that because I see God in the near future interrupting our services more often, but they're not our services. They're God's services. And when we take moments like that, whether it's Pastor Josue or myself or Maria or anyone that might say, you know what, I sense the Holy Spirit doing something. Can we bind together in faith and believe God that if the Holy Spirit's doing that, then that means he's sending the promise and then the power to back that up to set us free. So if the Holy Spirit is saying, cast your care on me, if you're still carrying that, that's in disobedience. If you're carrying that out of here, you're not taking advantage of that, then you, we have to by faith say, okay, God, here is that care. Here is that burden. Here is that thing. I'm giving it to you. And it also excites me because if God's telling us to give us our burdens, it also means that we're about to see breakthrough in those areas. We're about to see God's presence and power show up in those areas. But too many times we've started playing church rather than being a part of a move of God in the earth. And it's, it's important that we catch those things. So I wanted to pause and just do a real quick little discipleship on that because the Lord may break out in a word of prophecy. The Lord may break out in, a, in an action where he says, hey, come and let's kneel and let's do such and such and let's do this. Can we be the kind of church that's quick to hear, quick to obey, quick to receive? How many of you are with me on that? Is that okay? Excellent. Amen. We don't just want to run services. We want to hear the temperature and feel what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's moving and we want to be caught up in that moving. Today, I want to talk to you about evidence for the resurrection. Today's going to be a little bit classroom, a little bit courtroom. Is that okay? I want to give you some content, very important content, which actually shows up on your app. If you do not yet have the Calvary Orlando app, this is a great reason to download the app right now. Because what I'm going to share with you, I'm going to read a majority of what I'm going to talk about because it's important you catch all these points. But I also wanted to provide it as a resource for you to take home with you. I also included other sources that you can go and further your study to realize that our faith that we have in Christ and in the resurrection has reason, has historical backing. There is evidence for what we believe. Let's get into the scripture real quick. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm really hoping our young people, those of you in college, university, high school, you're really listening today because I'm really resourcing you to help you push back on a culture that's saying what we believe is fairy tale, what we believe is just fantasy, just made up, just those Christians out there who just made this thing up. That is not true. We are following Jesus Christ who truly came, walked this earth, died on a cross, rose on the third day, came back and showed us he conquered. 
And I want to give you resource, proof, and evidence to have not just a comeback, but to have a solid foundation for why you believe what you believe. But let's look at John chapter 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, so this is the Sunday Jesus was resurrected. So we've been in a resurrection series. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you. Now, if you aren't following what I'm saying, Jesus was resurrected. He is now showing up there in the evening to, to show himself true and real and alive in front of them. Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them his wounds on his hands and on his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them and the doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my wounds in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Let me just kind of unpack this a little bit. A couple things that stick out to me. When Jesus showed up, they saw the Lord. That was a real moment. He was tangible, he was present, he was real. Then eight days later, he shows up again. I'm gonna show you a little bit here in a minute that Jesus shows up repeatedly after his resurrection and that's important. I, don't think, I also think it's interesting that he shows up and when he talks to Thomas, he repeats to Thomas what Thomas said when Jesus wasn't there with them. Which means that our Lord was listening, even though he wasn't physically appearing to them, he was still hearing everything they were saying. And so then when he showed up eight days later, he's like, oh, Thomas, you wanted to see my hands? You wanted to feel my side? And what do you think Thomas is feeling in that moment? He's listening. <laughs> You know, your Lord is always listening and he's real. You may not see him with your eyes, but he's really there. He really is alive, my friends, which is why we gather. It's why we sacrifice. It's why we serve. It's why we worship. This is the foundation of everything. If Jesus be not risen, then this is all in vain. But he is alive. He is risen. And so something changed. Something changed behind those locked doors in that room. These disciples turned into world changers in that moment because they met the Lord. They were hiding in that room. The room was locked. I love that the Bible says it repeatedly that when they were gathering, they kept locking these doors. You know why? Because there was fear in their heart. Fear of being found, fear of being arrested, fear of being executed. 
but when they began to see the Lord and began to be persuaded that it's really him and, and he's truly alive, that fear melted away and all of a sudden this courage begins to come, this confidence begins to come because they know he's alive and everything he said was true. Today I hope to show you some evidence for the resurrection that would give you confidence and courage, just like the disciples. Courage to live for God publicly, to give your life in the service of his kingdom, not because it was your grandmother's faith or because someone else kind of brought you to church and you just kind of sit there wondering, but today, like the disciples, you would meet the Lord that you would have evidence to believe in and to believe upon and that any insecurity or any fear would begin to melt off of your life and you would begin to stand up tall and boldly proclaim that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Not like you're following a historical character, but like you are following. I am a follower of Jesus Christ who is alive who's with me, who'll never leave me or forsake me. Amen. You might ask the question, didn't Jesus mean at the end of that passage that it's best to have blind faith? Sometimes you kind of hear that final verse that I read to you when Jesus said, you know, Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Maybe Jesus was saying that, that we should have blind faith and maybe that's more important. But I want to express to you today that faith doesn't mean no evidence. You know, when you get on an airplane, you may not know everything, but you know enough to get on that airplane. Are you hearing me? You've seen airplanes. and <laughs> You've seen them fly and you've seen them land and we appreciate the landing part. But you don't know everything about it, and the truth is we can't describe to you every proof, every fact, every resource available to us to give us confidence. But I hope to give you enough evidence that you realize your faith has reason and backing so that you can get on board and then you can let God take you where he's wanting to bring you. In the same way, I don't believe love is blind, I don't believe faith is blind. I believe real love sees very clearly and chooses to love. I believe real faith takes evidence, takes the evidence that it has, and it makes a decision upon that evidence. When Jesus said that most people would not see him personally and still believe, he wasn't saying that there is no evidence, okay? Rather, that the evidence would not be the same evidence that Thomas and those disciples received. Even the disciples themselves would become evidence as eyewitnesses of these things. So the Lord wasn't saying that there would be no evidence, but rather that the evidence would be different than what they were experiencing. But there is plenty of evidence for a case for faith in Christ. A few thoughts on evidence that give me confidence about the reality of Christ's actual and physical resurrection. You can start taking notes if you have, and I'm gonna give you some ideas or some thoughts regarding the evidence. One of the first things I want you to look at or to consider regarding the real resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb. 
the empty tomb itself. Consider that. The Jews or the Romans had no motive to steal the body. What would be their reason? It doesn't help them at all. The apostles, they're too scared. We already know that they're hiding behind locked doors, that Peter had already denied the Lord, that they were not going to sit there and take on Rome and the Sanhedrin right now. They were running for their lives. The empty tomb. Women had been there when Jesus' body was laid. The women that were recorded who showed up on Sunday morning had followed the body to be buried. Why do I say that? Because there was an argument that maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. But they knew where the body was laid. They were there. Are you understanding that? And they went back to where they laid the body. The women knew where the body was. The Sanhedrin would have produced the body to stop the spread of the good news. If the Jews would have taken the body, if the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin would have taken the body to keep it from being stolen, then all they would have had to have done was reproduce that body, produce that body and say, no, look, he's still here, he's still dead. But they didn't have the body. The Romans didn't have the body, amen? Because he was alive. The Bible even notes, which I think is interesting, that Jesus' clothes were nicely folded where his body laid. They were not hurriedly thrown into a corner somewhere as if someone was stealing the body and quickly getting away. There was intentionality. I think the Bible signifies those things and points those things out on purpose for us to realize that this wasn't a rushed thing. This was a beautiful move and work of God. The Bible records that angels announced that this Jesus is not here, he is risen. And so again, I propose to you the empty tomb. Why was the tomb found empty? If the Romans didn't take it, if the Jews didn't take it, and the disciples didn't have the ability to take it, then where's the body? The body isn't there. The body's risen, amen. Second thought I want you to consider today. The eyewitness accounts of the women themselves, the ones we talked about just a little bit ago, the women themselves. If this was a made-up account, no ancient writers would have used women as reliable sources for the first eyewitnesses of that day. In that period of time, women were second-class citizens. In that period of time, women's testimonies were not even allowed in courtrooms. So our Bibles saying that the first eyewitnesses were women is a big deal. It's a big deal. The male gospel writers had to write what they experienced. And the truth was that Christ chose to appear to these women first and gave them the honor of being the first to preach. He's risen. Do you realize the first individuals to see and declare that Jesus Christ is risen were females, were women, the first preachers, preachers. And that was God's choice. Amen. It's important. But if this was being manipulated by the disciples, the apostles, if these gospels were written just to tell a story that would be more believable, What I'm saying is they would not have included women being the first eyewitnesses because that is not the way to do it in that culture, but it's the way God wanted it done. 
it shows that it wasn't designed by the bunch of guys in the corner over here trying to make a case for what they believed or what they wanted people to believe. Number three, let's talk about the apostles' newfound courage. The apostles went from being cowards to courageous. We talked about that. Proclaimers that he had risen just as he said. Now I want you to think about yourself and think about them. People do not change that dramatically and that quickly or that collectively without a major influence. The disciples went from hiding from the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and from the Romans into standing in the same city that these events occurred, declaring that Jesus had risen. We don't change our minds that quickly. And I want you also to realize the setting that the apostles were Jews, faithful Jews. The Romans had leaders that might have been more influential, more powerful, and made more sense for them to say that leader, that emperor was our savior. Rome had lots of gods that the Jews could have chosen. Greece had lots of gods that the Jews could have chosen. Alexander the Great had been through there. Caesar believed and talked about himself being that level of influence like a god on the earth. Do you understand the Jewish people were faithful in that season, were faithful to one God? It's important. So this isn't like these apostles or these disciples were just looking for anyone who said they were a god. Rome had gods to offer. Are you hearing me? Greece had gods to offer. Caesar himself had this, this way of trying to win everyone over to himself and saying, I also have this Roman Empire backing me, but that wasn't enough for the Jews to believe and for these disciples to put their faith in, the, in Caesar or in the Roman Empire. But yet here this Jesus comes, lives with them for three years, teaches in front of them, performs miracles, but even that, when Jesus died, the disciples ran away and hid. But all of a sudden, almost overnight, these disciples moved from being fearful and cowards to stepping out into the light in the same city. You're hearing me, you're hearing this church. Who changes this quickly? This was not their, their wishy-washy you know, kind of culture. You know, in this generation, people change religions and they go in and out of church like this all the time. This wasn't the way of these Jews in this time period. They would rather die for their God and for their belief. They would rather resist Rome altogether and lay their life down in their belief system than to change their belief. But yet in this short period of time, they went from being these Jews that follow faithfully their belief system into giving all that away and saying, no, something has changed. There was a catalyst that changed. There was an encounter that changed them. That's so important. Are you hearing this? And you might see maybe one or two make that change, but I'm saying all of those disciples that knew Jesus best, that were eyewitnesses of his, of his courtroom case, that were eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, and were also eyewitnesses of his resurrection, collectively, they all changed. They all changed. Not just two or three, not half. There wasn't two or three that were still over here that were still you know, thinking about it. My friends, 
all of them had that encounter with the risen Savior. It was real, it was authentic, and it changed them. And they completely stepped away from their heritage. Are you hearing that? To not just saying we believe in a new religion. Listen to what Thomas said. He said, my Lord and my what? God. My Lord and my God. Because he's standing in front of them, victorious over death, right there in front of them. They changed what they thought. And all of a sudden now they're confident in him. That is such a huge deal. Jesus, their master, appeared to them in that locked room, but then he walked with them on the seashore. Some of you don't realize that Jesus appeared to them repeatedly and consistently for the next 40 days. He walked with them on the seashore. He spent 40 days with them, multiple opportunities for them to talk with him, to spend time with him. What I want you to see on that was Jesus is appearing to them wasn't like just a real quick glimpse it wasn't like a shadowy figure that was maybe interpreted. It wasn't like a Bigfoot sighting. Are you understanding that? Like, did you see him? I don't know. I think so. Something was in the corner. It was a mist. It was a haze. It was a cloud. It, was, it looked like Jesus, but maybe it wasn't. I want you to see this. The Lord spent like 40 days with them. The reality of his resurrection the conversations, he, he showed up in multiple locations. It wasn't like just this locked room had this little glory thing that happened and you have to be in the room at the right time of day where the sun kind of comes down and the light hits like a mirror and all this, oh, that's Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. He, they saw him in the room, they saw him on the seashore, they saw him eat dinner with them. Are you hearing this? In all these multiple locations, why? Because he's alive and he was real and he showed up where they were and he wanted to make sure that he spent enough time with them. And not only did he show up to those, those 12 disciples, he showed up to many other witnesses. That's my fifth point. But I have to give you the fourth one. But I'll give you the fourth one first. Sorry. I jumped to five. Point number four is this, the changed life of James and others. Now this is James, the brother of Jesus. This is all so good. Jesus' own brother, James, before the resurrection was openly skeptical about Jesus. But James, who grew up with Jesus, and it's just so important that those who are skeptical and their confession afterwards because they saw the Lord, something had changed. James, Jesus' own brother, who was a hostile towards the move that Jesus was bringing into the earth, ended up becoming a leader in the early church. And eventually James ended up dying for that which he preached and he saw and he believed and he confessed. Let's go back to these large crowds I was telling you about, point five. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. I pass on to you what was most important. This is the apostle Paul talking. And what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 followers. Can you say 500? 500. At one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. 
Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. That's again. Last of all, Paul was saying, as though I had been born of the wrong time, I saw him. I love that it was a variety of people, men and women, a variety of places, a variety of settings, different economics of different people's lives. Some people who are fishermen, some people who are tax collectors, some people who were educated in religion, some people who are not educated at all. But Jesus showed up to multiple places, multiple people at multiple times. This is what your Bible teaches. This is what was so revolutionary in that time because again, even Paul saying this in 1 Corinthians, most of these 500 people were all still alive. Why would Paul write that to the church of Corinth? Because if you have doubt of whether or not these things happen, you can still go find these individuals and say, tell me what you saw. Don't you love that? Don't you love that in that time period there was such confidence because Jesus didn't just show up in one little secret corner somewhere. There were Jesus sightings all over and people could go test it out, which is also why it's such a big deal that Christianity started in the same city that all those events occurred. It's totally different if the apostles would have gone all the way to Africa and said, hey, something happened in Jerusalem where this guy, he said he was God and he died and he rose again. Isn't that great? And they started Christianity a thousand miles away, but that's not what happened, was it? Was it? They went back to the same city that just a few days ago could say, you're lying. Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross. The tomb still has a body in it. Are you hearing me, church? God chose to launch this movement in the same city that could have stopped it. But it didn't stop there. If it was going to die, it would have died there. And then, but they couldn't Stop it because there's too many witnesses, too many witnesses of his resurrection. The body's not in that tomb. Amen. I love this stuff. (laughs) The conversion of Paul is another one. Paul, like James, Jesus' brother, Paul was an aggressive persecutor and antagonist that became one of the most passionate preachers of the resurrection and of grace. Paul became an advocate overnight, listen, with nothing to gain in the natural, but everything to lose. Paul went on to suffer shipwrecks, beating, imprisonment, and finally death because of the reality when he experienced Jesus personally. We sometimes, we just hear these Bible stories, but listen, Paul was successful. His name was Saul. And he was kind of the up-and-coming Pharisee of Pharisees. And in that time, that's a very influential position. There's money involved. There's influence involved. Your family has a bunch of honor. Paul is hostile towards this message of Jesus. But overnight, he goes from being hostile against it to passionate about it. 
This is what I'm trying to help you understand. These are, as God referred to them throughout Scripture, stiff-necked, stubborn people. (laughs) Right? But I think he made them that way on purpose because they'd have to endure a lot in this world. And they have, and they're determined. There's so much passion about the Jewish nation that we love. But what I'm trying to say is they're not like so many other individuals who just do what's convenient or what's fun. They're not like that. They're not raised that way. And Paul had everything to lose in the natural and seemingly nothing to gain. Why would a guy who's on the fast track of success with fame and influence for his family, they're like at the top of the food chain of positions going to become one of the leading Pharisees, why would he overnight move from an antagonist to being passionate about? I'll tell you why. Because he couldn't deny his encounter with the living Jesus Christ. And my friends, this is what my prayers for all of us. When he saw the reality of Jesus, he never felt like he was losing anything. We feel like, look what I left behind. It's because you haven't seen the Lord yet. You've lost nothing. Paul says, I count all these other things as nothing for the joy of what I've gained. It's because he genuinely saw the Lord. So shipwreck didn't matter. I can endure shipwreck because I saw the Lord. He lost influence, but he didn't lose anything because he saw the Lord. He only gained. We look at it as loss because we don't understand what we've really gained. Amen. Let's go back to another proof, in my opinion, proof about all these disciples. They all died for Christ. I'm going to give you a quick rundown of how they died. They all died for Christ. You can find this through all different church history documents. One, you can look at the Fox's Book of Martyrs, but you can look at church history. There are some variations in the accounts, but the reality is all of them laid down their life for Jesus. Okay? They all died for preaching the resurrected Christ. Are you hearing me? James, the older brother of John, The Bible says King Herod killed him with a sword. That could have been he was beheaded or he was stabbed. Peter, in AD 66, was crucified upside down by the Emperor Nero. He said, I am not worthy to be executed the way my Lord was executed, so please please crucify me upside down. And it's important, too, something in my studies this week I wanted to bring out. Nero was accusing the Christians of that time of all kinds of animosity against his civilization. And they would begin burning Christians as like torches on the street corners at night. The, the, the narrative against the church was that the church, that these Christians were like the worst people in their culture, right? And so when they were burning them at the, you know, to light up the streets at night, um, he accused them of burning down the, the cities. He accused the Christians of burning down Um, different parts of Rome. He blamed them for it, which wasn't true. But here's what I want you to see. And this is a side thought, but it's something I think it's important. The early church, these Christians, they were not well received by their civilization and the communities and culture. And somehow we've gotten this like weird draw that we want our culture to accept us and to like us somehow. And we've gotten this weird thing that it's our purpose or mission that we're 
that somehow they receive us and we, we impress them. I'm telling you, in the beginning, we were like the most hated people in the culture because we resisted all those gods, because we wouldn't bow down to the emperors, because we said you can't live in the perversion and the paganism and the sexual ridiculous list that you guys want to live in. And somehow we've changed and we think to ourselves that our goal in life is that the world approves of us and that they like us rather than we declare the truth. There may come a day, my friends, where no one in our societies appreciate the value of the church, though we're still the salt and the light. But you see, these individuals laid their life down for what they believed because it was real. We, we, we lay down what we believe because we're not fully persuaded that we're actually following the resurrected Savior, the real Lord. We think we're following a set of principles or a faith. And guess what? When we're pressured, we're going to quit on that because we're not that persuaded about it. Are you hearing me, church? The idea that the world's going to somehow fall in love with who we are and what we do isn't historically proven. You don't see that because we don't follow the God of this world. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, and I love this, these disciples began to spread from Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem, but then they began to spread. Andrew went all the way to the Soviet Union, all the way to the Asian Minor, all the way to Turkey, all the way to Greece. Again, why would these individuals start going around the world? Because that was the Lord's desire, that they would go into all the world. And it was worth the travel and worth the difficulty of getting there. Why do we send missionaries and give money to missions like we do? Because we're declaring the real Lord, the real Savior of humanity. Are you hearing me? You look at the cost and the commitment and how they traveled as far and wide to spread this gospel. Why would somebody do this when they could just say, Jesus died, I'm going home to be with my kids. I'm going back. Are you hearing me, church? I don't need to, I don't need to lay my life down now. Sometimes we just assume like the disciples would just do this. Why? They could have been like, he's dead, we were wrong. I'm just gonna go to another city and start over again. And I'm just gonna pretend like that never happened. That's not what any of them did. 100% of them said, it's real, it's worth living the rest of our life for, and they got more intense, more passionate, more courageous about it, and went far and wide to tell the world about it, rather than just going back into secrecy and comfort and try to like, deny that it ever happened. Do you see this? It's because they couldn't deny the Jesus that showed up behind those locked doors. They couldn't deny the hours they spent with the resurrected Lord. Amen. Thomas went to India. I'm sorry, Andrew was crucified. Thomas went to India. He was speared to death. Philip went to North Africa, Asian, Asia Minor. He was impaled. Matthew went to Persia, Ethiopia. He was stabbed. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, went to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, Arabia. He was skinned and beheaded. James the Younger died in Jerusalem, being stoned and clubbed, and then they cut his body into pieces. Simon the Zealot was crucified and then sawn in half. Matthias, who took the place of Judas, 
went to Syria with Andrew, and he was burned to death. John, the beloved, was boiled in oil. That didn't kill him, so they banished him to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Later came back to Ephesus and led the church. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, was beaten with clubs, then crucified upside down. Paul, the one we just spoke about, the apostle, he was beheaded. James, Jesus' brother that we spoke about, was thrown off of a high wall and then beaten to death when he hit the ground. Are you hearing this, church? It's not like simple little deaths. It's not like, you know, hey, let's, you know, just give you a little quick, you know, death. These were painful. These were things that they could have recanted what they were speaking about. But not one of them, not one of them turned their back on what they saw or what they believed. I heard it said when I was in ministry training a long time ago and always stuck with me that some may die for what they believe to be true, but few will die for what they know to be a lie. There are people who will die for a, a religion that they believe to be true. We see that with terrorism and we see that they, they believe something that isn't true, but they believe it to be true. What these disciples were doing was they were the first-hand eyewitnesses. So they would have known whether or not this was true or a lie. Did they all gather together and form this religion? Did they all gather together and say, let's create this you know, new movement? But yet they knew Jesus was dead. They knew that he was still buried. If they would have known that Jesus was still dead, or if there was any suspicion that he didn't raise, they would not have gone through what they've gone through. And they, one of them would have said, we were lying. <laughs> don't crucify me. Don't beat me with clubs. Don't throw me off a building. Don't burn me at the stake. Don't scrape my skin off. Are you hearing me, church? You're right. You're right. But none of them could deny what they saw, who they spoke to, the one that they touched his hands and his side. Do you hear that, church? Some may die for what they believe to be true, but few will die for what they know to be a lie. And all of them died, willingly died. And, and from our, most of our records, they not only died willingly, they celebrated the fact they were able to lay their life down for the Lord. All of these men met the Lord and could not deny the truth that they had seen. I remember as a young man asking if there were any other sources outside of the Bible that confirmed the reality of these events. I know some of you, because like myself, I'm a very critical thinker. I would say, Pastor Kevin, you just gave me a bunch of stuff in the Bible, but is there anything outside of the Bible that would affirm these events? Because if it's just in the Bible, what if the Bible isn't accurate? So I would ask those same questions. Are there any sources outside the Bible that confirm the reality of these events the reality of the apostles, the reality of Jesus. Is this whole story just fiction or were these real events, real people and real history? Before I get into the outside of the Bible resources, I do wanna say this. Please hear what I'm about to tell you. I think that we're foolish to throw out history because it's in the Bible. We have more confirmation of manuscripts of the Bible, both old and new, 
than we have for almost any other ancient historical document. We have over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts that date within 70 years of when those things happen, which means that those manuscripts could have been opposed by many eyewitnesses. They were in the same generation of people that could have said that they were not accurate. Listen to what I said again. There was about 5,000 Greek manuscripts, but if you include Syriac, Latin, and other resources, over 24,000 manuscripts from within 70 years of when the events actually occurred. That is 1,000 times more evidence than we have for Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, and many others. Do you understand that we have more belief that Plato was real, or that Aristotle was real, and there's only like 10, 20 manuscripts that we have, and most of them are a couple hundred years after those individuals lived, but we're like, oh, they, they are history. They speak of these individuals. They speak of their teachings. So therefore, they're real. And we have over 5,000 just Greek texts and over 24,000 in other languages from the, the century from which they happened. And people are like, oh, I don't believe the Bible because it's in the Bible. It's because you're not even, you're not even using the same logic of how we determine anyone else's reality or any other events in history. You're removing the same standard. Are you hearing me, church? The same standard that we would say Aristotle was real or Plato or Socrates or all these people were real. They really lived. This is what they really said. This is how they really impacted. We have so much more evidence in Jesus and the disciples and the gospels than any of that. A thousand times more evidence. Come on, church. Do you hear this? But yet people will tell you your Bible can't be believed, but it passes way more tests than any of those others do. But yet we throw it out and we say we can't believe the New Testament because it's in the Bible. It didn't really happen. No, it really happened. So I wouldn't so quickly just say that your Bible isn't a good testimony. Your Bible is a great testimony. But now let's look outside the scripture into some pagan and Jewish sources. Now the reason pagan and Jewish sources are good sources is because they're hostile against the message. They're hostile against the movement. So it's important that we can see that here these are individuals that would oppose that message, but yet they still wrote about the facts, the places, the people to help give us confidence some of their interpretation would be different because they're hostile witnesses, but the reality of these events, the reality of Christ, the reality of what he taught, the reality of what people said about him is all there. Here's some of their sources. I just put them through you on the screen. They'll be in your notes. I won't go through all of them, but there's all these names that are super hard to pronounce that I'm going to look silly if I try to pronounce their names, but if you can start rolling those through on the screen, they're in your notes. There's like Thallus and Mara Bals, something or other, and Flagian, and Pliny the Younger, and Lucian, and all these things, and here's the dates that they wrote. And so I gave you these ancient sources, because I'm about to read to you, if you compile all of their thoughts, if you compile all of their writings about Jesus and about that time period that was going on that our gospel message preaches, I will give you the picture that you will get from those hostile sources. You have the Jewish historian Josephus, you have the Jewish Talmud, and you have 
uh, the Toledot Yeshu, I think is how it's said, which is a hostile retelling of the life of Jesus. So again, these are pagan and Jewish sources. They were not the gospel writers. They were not in our New Testament. But if you take all of their accounts, you take all of their testimony, here's the picture of what you would still get. Listen, this is what you would still get if you didn't use any gospels and you only used the hostile witnesses who recounted these events. Here's the picture you would get. Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. Remember, this is all coming from secular stuff now. This isn't coming from the Gospels. He was a teacher who taught through repentance and belief. All followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs. He was a wise man who claimed to be God and the Messiah. He had unusual magical powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said. He was betrayed by Jewish Iscariot. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar, to wear a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the eve of Passover, and this crucifixion occurred under the direction of Pontius Pilate. I'm still reading. My friends, all of this is coming from non-biblical sources. This is coming from people that are hostile against the message. Are you hearing me? You've already determined that they believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Where, that he, first of all, that he even existed. There are people that will say Jesus never really existed. History tells another story. The Gospels are not the only place in the world that talks about the reality of Jesus Christ. Amen. And these are the reports about Jesus that were being circulated and passed around. And these hostile, um, hostile writers wrote them down so that people would know what was being spoken. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar, wear a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the eve of Passover under Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius. This is a real time, a real place. On the day of his crucifixion, listen to this, the sky grew dark and there was an earthquake. Afterwards, he was buried in a tomb and the tomb was later found empty. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to his disciples resurrected from the grave, showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus' disciples and followers upheld a high moral code. One of them was named Matthew. The disciples were also persecuted for their faith, but were martyred without changing their claims. And they met regularly to worship Jesus even after his death. You can find all of that from outside of the Bible sources. Does that help you at all, church? Does that help you? So these sources, even though they may see it differently than us, they still affirm the initial evidential claims of the biblical authors and the reality of their existence. I put in your notes other sources that you could go read later to help you continue with this. So what are some of my takeaways as I close this service? What does all this mean to us? Number one, Jesus Christ truly walked this earth. And it's not just because the Bible says it, other historical records 
show us the reality that Jesus Christ walked this earth. There were genuinely and truly disciples, and they followed this real person. Another takeaway is that Jesus was actually crucified. Actually crucified, a date, a time, it genuinely happened. Jesus was actually raised from the dead and showed himself to many witnesses. The disciples were willing to die horrible deaths because of the reality of what they knew. They knew Jesus is God. They knew he was the way to get to God and they knew he was worth living for and then dying for. I would encourage us, we have a hard time giving Jesus a few hours in a week. We have a hard time giving away a little bit of money, a little bit of time and being inconvenienced. Anything that costs us, we have a hard time with that. This tells me that we need to meet the Lord in his reality again. That the Lord is not a theology, and he's not just some ideology. Jesus is looking at us the same way he looked at his disciples one day and says, who do you say that I am? Do you say I'm just a story? Do you say that I'm just some fanciful religious thing? Or do you say I'm alive? Do you say I'm real? Are you hearing me, church? Because if we see him as alive and real, we will, like Thomas, say, my Lord and my God. And then nothing, no sacrifice is too great. Are you hearing me? No persecution pushes you away because we see the Lord and the reality of who we've put our faith in. Why don't you stand up and let's close in a word of prayer. I want to pray this over us. Put your hand over your heart. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. God, I'm asking that you help us to see the Lord, to see the evidence. That God, our faith isn't just random belief. There's reason, there's cause for our faith. And Lord, I ask that you help this faith to become so real inside of us today. God, we're not hoping that you're real. We know you're real. We're not hoping that you rose from the dead. We live from a place knowing that you rose from the dead. That God, you're alive and present when we go home right now. We're not going home alone. Like Jesus was hearing Thomas's words. You hear our words all the time. They might not have seen you physically there, but you're there and you're with us. We may not always see you physically. Matter of fact, most of the time on this side of eternity, we won't see you the way they saw you, but we can still know you're there. You are here with us. You feel what we feel. You walk with us through what we go through. I just pray for such an awakening of us to the reality of who you are. We don't want to play church. We don't want to just come into a building and just do this thing. God, we come to be with the Lord. We come to worship the Lord. We share the good news of the Lord. We, 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 we testify of the Lord, the reality of the Lord. God, help us to see you today. And Lord, if there's any doubts in our hearts, we give those doubts to you. We ask that, God, you come in. One thing cool that you did with Thomas is, is that you came and you helped him with his doubts. And God, I pray that you would help any of us in this room that might have that same situation. Lord, we believe, help, help the unbelief so that this church would be filled with people 
who absolutely are fully persuaded. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for really doing all the things that you did. And God, we're so grateful that we get the opportunity to tell the world about it. I bless this house, bless their relationship with you right now, and ask you to take it places even further and farther than it's ever been before. Lord, I give you thanks in Jesus' name. I pray that, Lord, the courage and the confidence fills this room as, Lord, you persuade us and you help us understand the reality of all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you can celebrate that. That's all right. That's all right. Let me do this. I'm going to ask you today, where do you stand with Jesus? You know, here we are talking about the reality of his death, the reality of his resurrection. Well, what have you done with it? Have you asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior? If not, we need to still do that. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages, penalty of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. And then the Bible goes on to say, all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so today I want to give you an opportunity to call on the name of the Lord, to accept this real resurrected Jesus into your life, to forgive you of your sins, and to make you a child of God. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes for the next 30 seconds. If that's you, you say, Pastor Kevin, I don't remember a time in my life that I ever asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Then let's do it today. When I count to three, just raise your hand. I'll pray with you right of your seat. Or you say, you know what? I used to have a relationship with God, but I've really drifted away. I'd like to recommit myself 100%. I said this on Easter. I'll say it one last time here. If you say yes, you're saying yes to a real resurrected Jesus. If you say no, you're saying no to the real resurrected Jesus. We need to make sure that this isn't about an opinion right now. This is about a decision. And so today, if you say, I've never given my life to Jesus, when I count to three, just raise your hand. We'll, we'll receive him right now. Or you say, I would like a restart with the Lord. When I count to three, just raise your hand. Ready? One, two, three. If that's you, would you raise your hand? There's one hand there. Anybody else? Two. I see your hand there. Anyone else? Put it up. Two. Three. Thank you. Yeah, I see it. Anybody else? Four. Five. Anyone else? Put it up. Put it high. The Lord to see it. The, the real Lord to see it. Six. Awesome. I see you over there. Praise God, everybody. Seven. All right. Let's pray together. Yeah, you can celebrate that, church. Amen. Let's all pray together so they're not praying by themselves. Let's all pray this prayer together. Just repeat after me. Dear God, I thank you that you see me just as I am. I realize that I've sinned and I've walked away from you. I receive Jesus Christ today as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died for me and that he rose again. Please forgive me of my sins. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take every part of me now. Be my God. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you celebrate real big church. Amen. Welcome home. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 1030 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.